Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 11. Psalm 11, verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Father, have mercy this morning, we pray. Open our eyes. Help us to see you as you are and to see the world as it is, to see ourselves as we are, to see and hate and repent of our sins. Change this, Father, we pray by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you who are guests, around a year ago, we started something we call the Love Bloomington Campaign. It's more of a challenge than a campaign, a challenge uh, for us to spend a full year working and challenging one another to grow in our love for our neighbors and for our community. We committed together to spend time praying every day for three people. We committed to talking to somebody about Jesus at least once a week. We committed to sharing our lives with our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, our friends, at least once a month, to have coffee, to have lunch, to have somebody over for dinner. And our hope, our hope was that as we challenged one another to grow in love, that God would honor that, that God would do amazing things among us. We've been praying that these commitments that we've made would become part of our daily lives, something that's a part of who we are, that's how we engage the world. And we've been praying that God would bless our commitments by bringing new people and families to faith in Christ and bringing them into this church family. In fact, we've been praying that God would bring 100 people to us. And God has blessed us Many of us have grown in love for our neighbors. Raise your hand if you've grown in love for your neighbors over the course of the past year. Many of us have seen God rewarding our prayers and efforts with opportunities to show more love to more people as God answered your prayers. And God has often surprised us by giving us faith to do things that we didn't know we were capable of. God has brought a number of new people to our church even as he has also taken many away who have moved and found jobs in other places. Of course, it's not because we've all been a smashing success. Who feels like they are a smashing success? Yeah, Alex? Yeah? (laughs) Who feels like a failure? We all do. But that's not the point of the campaign. That's not the point of the challenge. If, if, it were for, if the point were for all of us to feel like failures all the time, we'd run it forever and we would up the commitments and make them even more difficult than they are. 
We'd add more and more requirements. And then we'd all, instead of actually growing in faith and in love for people, we would all just sit and pat ourselves on the back for how bad we feel about how little we love people. And isn't that so much better than everybody else who doesn't feel quite as bad as we do about how little they love everybody else? That would be stupid and faithless. None of us have been doing that, right? It would be sort of like the accountability uh, group. I I know maybe, I don't know what the young ladies equivalent to this is, but young men in college, they often uh, have accountability groups for dealing with lust and pornography. And what that amounts to is coming together once a week to sit down and agree that, yeah, we all really failed big time this past week. And isn't that terrible? And feel bad about uh, ourselves for a little bit and and then move on and never change and never grow. We're not doing that. We are committed to actually growing and maturing in love as a congregation. And that means real repentance and real change by the power of the Holy Spirit, not a perpetual cycle of mopey bad feelings. So instead of continuing, we're drawing to a close and we end on Easter. And that doesn't mean that we stop loving our neighbors. It means it's on each of us to take the commitment up to the next level. It's time to then take our training wheels off and be big girls and big boys who love people because God's loved us and not because we've decided to make commitments. And that's where this series came from, this brief series that we're doing on faith, hope, and love, because love comes from somewhere, and for love to grow, it needs not only to be sustained but fed. And love comes from faith and from hope, real faith and real hope, and that's what we need if we're going to continue this campaign or beyond this campaign to grow in our love for our neighbors. So hope. I picked a strange passage to speak about hope from this morning. The word hope is not in the passage at all. I think it'll make sense in a minute though. What is hope? What is hope? When we use the word hope, how do we normally use it? I hope that the Broncos win tonight. Anybody else join me in that hope? Anybody hope for the Panthers to win tonight? Always a contrarian. There was one in the first service too. (laughs) Thanks. We needed you. I hope the Broncos win tonight. That means I desire a good thing to happen, but it might not. It's my hope that the Broncos win tonight. Slightly different. Hope is a good thing. It's a thing. It's a good thing that I want to happen. My hope might not be realized. It might be dashed. Peyton needs to play better than Cam if the Broncos have any hope of winning tonight. Again, a little bit different. My hope is a thing that's necessary to happen in order for me to get what I want. But it might not work out that way. No matter how we speak of hope, we generally use it to convey the same two things. One is desire, and the other is uncertainty. It's something we want, one way or another, that we're not sure about, because it's in the future. And the Bible does use hope in those ways, but when we speak of hope in a bigger sense biblically, we mean something very different. Biblical hope is the opposite of uncertainty. 
Biblical Biblical hope is certainty, it is confidence. It simply means that we believe, that what we believe by faith is inevitable. It just hasn't happened yet. Hope's a component of faith, it's the future part of it. Hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience, Romans 8, 24. 1 Peter 1, as we read earlier, says we've been called to a living hope. In scripture, hope is an objective reality. It is fixed. The hope of salvation is not uncertain. It's simply something in the, fu- something in the future that is not yet realized. But it's as sure as God is in heaven and it's more certain than the sun. It's unseen, but we wait for it with patience, Romans says. We wait for it with patience because it is certain. Hope lays hold of what we can only see by faith. Faith sees God as he is, sees God in heaven, and sees all of his promises. And hope lays hold of God's promises. It grabs them and it clings on to God's promises like a lifeboat in the face of all opposition. Now that sounds nice. But the thing about hope is that it's hard and it's painful. What's, what's the opposite of hope? Despair. Despair is the first thing that maybe most of us think of. The opposite of hope is despair. What else might we think of as the opposite of hope? Doubt. Fear. I think the first answer we come up with is despair. What can be done? What can I do? I have no hope that anything can be done. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why cast down within me? The second answer I think we come up with is fear. What's going to happen? What's going to happen to me? I don't know. I have no hope that things will turn out well. Do you want to live without fear of anything that's frightening? Hope in God. First Peter 3. Hope requires us to be vulnerable because hope requires us to forget our protections, our securities, and to cast aside our false hopes and to fall entirely on God. It requires us to trust God. And that's scary. It's difficult. And in fact, it's impossible to do. It's so impossible to do that God must do it for us. And the way that God does it is he strips away all of the props, all of the false hopes, all of the false securities that we use to prop ourselves up. Many people get along in life by depending on false hopes. And we can get along that way for a while. A, A couple months ago, or maybe it was only a month ago, a little over a month ago, Amanda and I were worshiping at a church and uh, the pastor quoted Oprah and Dr. Seuss and ended the sermon by uh, playing over the loudspeakers Pharrell's Happy and calling everybody to dance. It was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever seen in my life. Amanda said we should try it this morning. <clears throat> we could do that. We could do that. We could all click our heels together and the ushers could walk down the aisles or we could replace the communion bread and wine with lollipops and we could lick our lollipops and we could click our heels together 
and I could talk in a Texas accent about how you can be a winner today. Or we could fill up the aching void of uncertainty with the noise of social media and Netflix and alcohol and Hallmark promises. We could look to things that we can touch and things that we can feel and taste for security and for stability. Sacraments, politics, money, relationships, entertainment, success. A million contingencies, and if we only get enough of them in the right order, we'll be filled up. But they all disappoint. Sooner or later, they all disappoint us. They all let us down. And very few people ever realize it before they die. They just move from one false promise to the next false promise, one false hope to the next false hope. With no grasp of reality. Unless or until God bursts on the scene and then he starts to take away things from us. Maybe he introduces death into our lives and shakes us up. Or maybe simply by a miraculous working of his spirit, he causes us to lose our taste for trivialities. He leads us through trials. He leads us into suffering. He opens old wounds. Abraham is the example of faith and hope that we have in scripture. Let me ask a question. I wonder if you've thought about it. How old was Abraham when he was promised a son? He was old, way old. How long did God, after he had promised him a son, make Abraham wait? A long time. A long time. How long do you think before God showed up, how long do you think Abraham had mourned having no son? Years and years. Right? Was he in his 70s or 80s when God first showed up to him? He was 75? 75. He had mourned a long time. How long do you think he had made his peace with the fact that he was never going to have that son? A long time. And then God shows up and says, I'm going to give you a son. And he awakens hope. And then he waits for 25 years to fill that promise. He opens the womb, the wound. Romans 4.18 says, in hope, against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. You think it was easy? We know it wasn't easy. We, we see how Abraham struggled, right? It's easy to look down on him, but the man left everything he had. He went to a land. He didn't know where he was going, all on a promise. He sojourned and he wandered and he worked and he waited. God taught him hope. 
So it shouldn't surprise us a few verses later in Romans 5 when we read this. We exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Abraham was taught hope through his tribulations. There's no real hope without seeing all of our false hopes as bankrupt hopes. And to do that, you have to come to the end of yourself and to the end of this world. You have to see yourself as bankrupt in every way and you have to see this world as completely incapable of delivering on its false promises. And the way God makes us do that is by suffering. Jonathan Edwards has a sermon called Hope and Comfort Follow Humiliation and Repentance. It's the title of a sermon. It's based on the passage from Hosea 2 where after God has ravished Israel, he says he'll turn the valley of Achor, which is where Achan and his family were stoned to death, where it means despair into a door of hope. In that sermon, Edwards makes the point over and over that hope and comfort arise in the soul, guess what, after trouble and after humbling for sin. There's a kind of Christian, a Christian in name at least, who takes God's promises in his hands and he rolls them around back and forth and he doesn't cling to them. He doesn't know how to cling to them because he doesn't have to cling to them. He holds them cheaply. He spouts them off tritely without any weight because he has no real hope because he doesn't understand himself and because he doesn't understand the world that he lives in. He has truckloads and truckloads of promises and no need for a single one of them except to live the triumphant Christian life. There's only two ends for that kind of Christian. Either God will lay him low and teach him hope through pain or that man will never see heaven. There is no hope until you've been brought to despair of all things but God. But there's another side of this. There's another problem that we fall into. It's an error. It's the opposite of being a superficial, happy, clappy Christian who buys into false hopes. And that's the problem, the error of the realist, the cynic, the man who thinks he has discernment. We do this kind of thing all the time. We react to the false trite hopes of America and American Christianity. We have some basic understanding of sin, of evil, of human nature, of the world, and we make hope out to be the enemy of discernment. Anything that looks or smells hopeful is something to be crushed. It stands in the way. Look with me again at Psalm 11. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain, For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You realize this is a friend of David's. This is somebody who's counseling him. But he's counseling him despair. He's saying, be afraid. Run away. Hide. Everything is terrible. 
It's hopeless. The foundations are destroyed. Can't you see? The wicked run everything. They're waiting for you. They're waiting for the righteous. The foundations are destroyed. There's no law. There's no justice. There's no hope. There's no order. What can the righteous do but despair? Go run and hide. Be afraid and despair. Fear and despair. Most commentators think the psalm was written while David was in Saul's house. But it doesn't matter when it happened. Those same men were always there with David. They were there in the trenches when Goliath was out in the fields. They measured how tall Goliath was. They knew how heavy his spear was. They knew how many people were in the Philistine army. They knew how impossible it was. They knew how completely ridiculous it was for a boy, a shepherd boy, to go out and meet Goliath with a sling and stones. Stupid, naive David with his sling and his stones. A punk kid. David, don't try to make a difference. Don't try to make a difference, David. Stupid David thinks he's going to be king. We'll see what Saul has to say about that. Stupid Abraham, wandering off into the wilderness, thinking he's going to become a nation of people that will save the world. He can't have kids. Stupid Moses, who does he think he is? Taking on Pharaoh. Stupid Joshua and Caleb, thinking the promised land could be taken. Stupid Daniel, stupid Josiah, stupid apostles thinking the world could be evangelized, stupid Athanasius thinking truth could prevail in a time of error when he was the only one, stupid Martin Luther thinking he could stand up to Rome, stupid William Carey thinking he could evangelize the heathens, stupid William Wilberforce, Didn't he know that the entire global economy was built on the slave trade? It was impossible to get rid of. Stupid Christians thinking they can overcome their own struggles with lust and envy and bitterness. See, they're seeing sin and corruption and evil in yourself and in the world. And if that's where you stop, that's not wisdom and it's not discernment. That's just godlessness. Some of the most godless people I've ever known are men that have just enough of a handle on their own wickedness and the wickedness of the world to despair a little bit. Just not enough to cast themselves on God. Just enough to wallow in their wickedness. There's something... They're seeing something of the world as it is and ourselves as we are. And then they're seeing it all in relation to God. The God who is good. The God who is sovereign over all things. The God who is in his heaven. The same God that gave birth to a nation from the near dead bodies of Abram and Sarai. The same God that parted the Red Sea. The same God that struck down the Canaanites and toppled the giant Goliath and transformed the entire culture of the pagan West and overcame Rome and ended slavery. 
And above and beyond all that, the same God who came and walked among us as a man who was crucified, dead, and buried, and who rose from the dead. And that above all things is the foundation of our hope. We don't live on Saturday in the darkness with Christ still in the tomb. We live on Sunday with him in heaven. Alive. That's the foundation of our hope. This same God sits enthroned in heaven. That's why David responds. The Lord is in his holy temple. You say to me, run like a bird to your mountain. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Don't tell me fly away like a bird. The Lord's in his temple. Don't tell me the foundations are destroyed. God's throne is in heaven. Foundations of heaven are firm. Don't tell me about SCOTUS and David DeLayden and Trump and Hillary and the Muslims and North Korea and the state of the church in America and your wicked father. God sees. God sees and he tests the sons of men. He's not asleep. He hates and judges the wicked and he loves and rewards the righteous. Now listen, all of those things are real. They're real problems and if you can't face them, you can't have real hope. Real hope sees things as they are. If you want to measure Goliath's spear and his height, that's fine. Know what we're up against and know how great our God is that he overcomes Goliath. But you don't use Goliath's size and his spear as a weapon to keep anyone from going out and taking him on in the name of God. Hope doesn't make us deny the realities that we're facing in our lives and in this world. It's a hard time. It's a dark time. Difficult times are ahead and God is in his heaven. Hope doesn't make us deny them. Hope makes us unafraid to look them all full in the face for what they are and to say with David, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why in despair within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, my help and my God. Hebrews calls hope the anchor of the soul. And so it is. It goes down deep and it keeps us from being tossed about by our emotions, by our circumstances, when all of God's breakers and waves roll over us. It helps us to weather every storm. It goes hand in hand with spiritual and emotional maturity. To be hopeless is to be godless. Ephesians 2 says that before we knew Christ, we were without hope and without God in the world. It means we were beyond hope, and it means there was no hope. We had no hope. We had nothing. If you have no hope, you don't have God. A Christian without hope is godless the same way that the psalmist was tempted to be in Psalm 73. He envied the arrogant, He nearly forgot 
his fear of God, why he kept his heart pure, why he gave himself to a life of difficult obedience. He became embittered and senseless and arrogant like a beast before God, he says. Hope is the lifeblood of the Psalms. There is not a psalm that's not hopeful in one way or another. Truly hopeful, not hopeful in the trite way. Even the darkest psalms and the darkest, from the darkest places are hopeful. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? Even that is ultimately hopeful. Because the psalmist isn't sitting in a corner by himself, moping. The psalmist is bringing his heart to God and pouring it out before the God who is there. The God who has compassion on the weak. The God who has mercy on the weary. The psalmist knows what to do when he feels despair. He tells himself to hope in God and he pours his heart out to God. He brings himself to God. That's what the Psalms do. They teach us how to respond to everything in life by turning to God in hope that he hears. He knows he's in heaven. He sees. So what's David's hope in Psalm 11? His hope's that God judges the righteous and the wicked. God's in heaven, God sees, God judges between the righteous and the wicked in this life and in the life to come. We see this theme again and again throughout all of scripture. It's where we finally rest our hearts. It's the same place where the psalmist in Psalm 73 ended up, in the temple of God. He sees the wicked are set in slippery places, but he knows that the nearness of God is his good, his Heart and his flesh may fail, but God is the strength of his heart and his portion forever. In the New Testament, Titus instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Romans 8 teaches us that we're to endure suffering and hope and wait patiently for the redemption of our bodies. Galatians 5, 5 teaches us that by the Spirit we're to wait for the hope of righteousness. Romans 5, 2 teaches us to exult in the hope of the glory of God. In other words, hope marks the Christian life from first to last. We hope in God We trust in his promises and they encompass everything from the forgiveness of our sins to the power to walk in obedience and holiness, the power of his word to work in our lives, in the lives of our friends and our families and our neighbors and in the world, transforming lives and cultures and ultimately the hope of justice for the oppressed and redemption for the righteous, culminating in the resurrection of the dead. Life for the godly in the presence of God before his face forever and for the wicked in David's words in this psalm, snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind. Judgment both in this life and in the one to come, hell. And that hope 
because it is certain, because it is real, is what frees us to live with joy, rejoicing in hope, as we're commanded to in Romans 12, living in love. Colossians 1 says, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Love comes from hope. Hope laid up in heaven. Not here and now. If it's here and now, it's over. God frees us from the fear of the future by giving us a hope in heaven that's certain so that we can risk everything in this life. So we don't have to be afraid of anything. We have no cause for ultimate despair. We're free to love, to be vulnerable. Because the most they can do is what? Kill us or hurt our feelings? And then heaven. Hope frees us to speak with boldness. 2 Corinthians 3, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. We have nothing to be afraid of. God is in heaven. God sees. God judges between the righteous and the wicked. Hope helps us to endure with the steadfastness of hope. First Thessalonians 1, 2, and 3. Endure to the end by hope. Setting our hope on God and our treasure in heaven frees us from all worldly cares and concerns. It frees us to take great risks for the sake of love and for the sake of God's kingdom. So be hopeful. Hope in God. You will hope in something. Hope in God. Now, last thing. One of the things that we like to do is we like to come and we like to feel bad about whatever it is we're talking about. Man, I just really stink at being hopeful. And we stop there, just like I said at the beginning. Who here feels bad for not being hopeful? Good. If you feel bad for being hopeful, then you can go home and forget about it and pat yourself on the back that you felt bad for being hopeless and forget about being hopeful. Don't do that. That's dumb, right? Here's an idea. Let's just stop. Forget yourself and look to God who's in heaven. He's there. His throne's established. It's not going anywhere. He sees. He knows. He will judge the wicked. And he will reward the righteous. Let's come to him now by faith. Father, we pray that you would fill us with all hope. Draw us near to you now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.